years ago, there was a, a country that wanted to build a bridge. They talked about it, they debated it back and forth, and finally they made the decision to build a bridge. And they built it, and um, then it occurred to them that they needed a bridge keeper. So they hired a local man to be the bridge keeper, and he dutifully went out and stood guard and watched over the bridge and looked after the bridge. After a while, they realized he's out there by himself and he doesn't have a boss. How do we know he's really keeping the bridge? And so they hired a boss for him. Uh, so there's a boss now over the bridge keeper. Now they have two employees, so they needed a bookkeeper. So they hired a bookkeeper to be able to manage the pay for the boss and the bridge keeper. Then they hit a recession, so they fired the bridge keeper. And that serves to illustrate for me many times how our political system resolves problems, our government sometimes resolves problems. It's nonsensical. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't apply to me. It doesn't, I, I'm, I'm able to see through it and live outside of that kind of nonsense, kind of craziness. I think we've just entered a phase that I've never seen I've seen a lot of stuff. I was through the Nixon-Watergate years. I went through a lot of stuff. I was a political cartoonist during that period of time, so I watched all of that. Watched a lot of different pieces of history, but I don't think I've ever seen anything like these days, politically. And uh, it's easy to say this. I'm not prophesying, but I, I think we've, we've entered into a kind of civil war. If you look back at the time leading up to the Civil War when Abraham Lincoln was put in as president, uh, you know, they tried to kill him in Baltimore before he even got to Washington, D.C. Um, uh, the political unrest was unbelievable, and, and states leaving. I, I saw a picture the other day of, of Texas trying to saw itself away from the rest of the country. Um, people, people are just saying, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be part of that craziness, part of the insanity, part of the, the bickering, the fighting, the the crab bucket mentality that we see. So there's a, uh, the Civil War was, was north and south, blue and gray. I don't think it's gonna be played out that way. I think it's, I think it's red and blue. And I think it's a, a, a liberal uh, kind of mindset that, that is uh, uh, humanistic and then uh, a more conservative mindset. And, and that plays out in England, and that plays out in Italy, and that plays out in Chile, and it plays out in all kinds of places. It's not an American thing. It's, a, it's not just a North American thing, although the same thing happens in Canada. And you, you see this seesaw back and forth of, of who's going who's gonna to dictate the, the norms of the country. While that's going on, and that's being played out in our news, and that's being played out every day, it becomes a very unsettling, especially if you love your country, it becomes a very disconcerting thing to see that, and, and it feels like we're powerless to stop it. It's like it's a, uh, you can see the insanity going on, and, and what can we do about it kind of thing. Well, rather than reacting to that and being frustrated and becoming uh, lawless and, and and saying, no one's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. There's another alternative, which is the kingdom of God, where you actually submit more deeply, but you submit to a greater reality. And after a while, I think if, if this works, if God has, 
if, he, if, if this will actually, if we'll subscribe to this, the kingdom of God will become more real than politics, more real than the U.S. government. His word will become a, a greater constitution for our life than, than the U.S. constitution. And uh, something has to happen that weans us off from this world system so that we actually subscribe more fully to the kingdom of God. And I think that's what's happening. I think that's where this is going. So that Jesus is alive. Jesus is just as real as, as anyone in the White House. Only he's our king. And we make petitions to him for our government, for our land, for our county, for our state, for the people that we're with. And, and there's no way to saw ourselves off from this thing. We're in it, whether we want to be in it or not. So if we're going to be in it, why don't we be in it for change? Why don't we affect change? Why don't we petition the king on behalf of the people who don't understand and trust the king to see us through? But uh, something has to happen in terms of vision in our hearts. We have to get a, get a greater vision of the kingdom of God. It can't be just a religious word. It can't be a buzzword. It can't be something that we just throw out to fill in, a, fill in a gap in a sentence. It has to be something that we see, something that we believe, something that we can really, truly grasp. In some countries, uh, especially in the former Soviet Union, at one time, and it's probably just as true today, I expect, I haven't seen it in recent times, but I remember preaching the kingdom of God, and it sounded like anarchy. It sounded so contrary to the, to the government that the government would actually go and shut down anybody who is preaching about the kingdom of God because you're preaching an alternative government. You're preaching an alternative authority. And you're, you're calling for people to submit to something uh, that no government can compete with. And it sounds like, it sounds like you're antisocial, I'm not antisocial. I just want to become more pro-kingdom than I've ever been before. How about you? Let me describe a little bit more about the kingdom of God and some of the aspects of it that I think are pertinent to us these days. Uh, and you really have to go back to Egypt. You have to go back to uh, the, the children and grandchildren of Abraham going down into Egypt and going into bondage for 430 years. If you think America being 250-some years old... That's a long time to be in bondage. That's a long time to be slaves. And something happens generation after generation where you live in a slum, and they never expected to live there very long, so there's no roads, there's no sewage, there's no infrastructure, there's no... In fact, you can go to Goshen today. You can actually go to Goshen today. There's no visible mark that the children of Israel were there. That's because they lived in huts. That's because they lived in, 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 in adobe tenements built out of thatch and bamboo and, and mud bricks and just, I mean, if you're a slave working all day making bricks, how much are you going to come home and make more bricks? And so what happened, it was just as these teetering tenements that just kind of, more, more kids come, so just add another addition on it. No streets, no infrastructure, because you don't plan to stay. You've got a vision of leaving this place. Besides, you're the lowest rung on the ladder economically, socially. You are scum. You are the worst of the worst. You are shepherds. It's like the worst thing that they can possibly call someone would be a shepherd. And uh, so the children of Israel never formed a government. Didn't have, they had some tribal elders uh, that were carryover from their, um, from their days when they were living out on the plains. 
They have a common language. They have a common DNA, a common, common lineage, and that's it. They don't have a law. They don't know God. They don't know the law. There are no laws. There's no concept, really, of God. All they know is God Almighty that revealed himself to their, uh, their fathers. They have a very limited view of God. And so after living in a slum condition for hundreds and hundreds of years, generation after generation, there's this poverty mindset. There's this, there's this anger, this seething uh, frustration and resentment that builds up. They're kind of in quarantine in a slum. They, they have no freedom to go where they want to go. They can't go out. They can't get ahead. They can't get a, start a new career. They can't get an education. They can't even have their own babies without the government aborting them commanding them that they must throw them to the crocodiles. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible, a horrible condition. And then God shows up, and, and, and his name is I Am. And I Am comes in with a young, a young guy named Moses, 80 years young, and, and, and he goes and he sets this people free and starts speaking promises that God's promised a land of milk and honey, and he's going to take us out of this place you know, with a strong arm, with mighty signs. Egypt is the mightiest nation on earth. The, the Pharaoh is the greatest king on earth, with the greatest army on earth. No one can beat the army of Israel. And here they are, this ragtag, all dressed in rags. They have no money. They have nothing. And Moses comes along and starts speaking faith, starts speaking hope, starts speaking words from God that there is a way out of this thing. And they, ended up, they, they end up following him to, where, like we sang tonight, where, the, where he made a highway through the sea. And he leads them out into the wilderness. And they're out there, and all their enemies have been uh, destroyed. And he leads them out there in the middle of nowhere. They have nothing. There's no shopping malls. There's no food. There's no water. There's, no, there's not hardly anything for grazing for their cattle, for the cows. They have nothing. And they get out there, and God wants to take them to a place where he can begin to strip away, in one generation, generations of a mentality, a mindset, a poverty mindset, a, a slum mentality. I've been to some of, the, some of the worst slums on earth, in, in, in Africa and other places that, that are just the worst possible slums you can imagine. And I've seen that slum mentality. I see what happens where there's generations that are raised up and that's, that's their normal. Well, the children of Israel had that. God leads them out and he begins peeling that off of them with his word. Moses starts speaking the word of God, saying, you will not live this way. You will not dress this way. You'll start washing. You'll start, I'm going to change your whole dietary system. I'm going to change how you relate to each other, how you solve your problems, rather than killing the guy next to you because he's infringed on your property and he's taken your stuff. I'm going to show you how to reconcile. I'm going I'm to set a judge in between you. And he gave them a judicial system. He gave them a religion. They had no religion. They had a hand-me-down understanding of God that never really got in their heart. And now the Lord's calling them out as priests and giving them a, a, a noble priesthood, giving them all new garments, and saying, you're going to live in tents, but you're going to live in rows. You're going to live, I want this tribe facing this way. I want this tribe. And he starts creating symmetry. He starts creating uh, order. He starts creating how, how to treat your wife, how to treat your kids, how to treat your livestock, 
how to clean up after yourself, where to go to the bathroom, how to deal with uh, social diseases. One thing that he did in Leviticus 13 is so profound. He said when there's a, when there's a, a, a pandemic, a social disease that's going from one person to the next, that's very contagious, what you do is you isolate the sick, not the well, not the, not the people who are healthy. You isolate those who are sick and you assign on a local level, not on some, some bureaucratic distant level, you put a local priest on and say, you decide whether they're free to mingle with the people or not. I mean, he came up with a brilliant plan that worked every time. Even Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. He said that to the lepers. Because God just solved every problem you can imagine, saying, here's, the, here's a logical, because he's the king of this people. And he starts acting like a king. And when people start to attack him, God goes out and he wins every single battle. And even has a health care plan that's out of this world. He said, you won't be like the other nations. You won't have all the diseases that are on the other nations. And if you do get sick, here's what you do. And he had a remedy, an amazing remedy for it. He changed their economy. He provided for them. He guided them. He said, when you see the cloud lift, follow the cloud. And he took them places. But in his heart, you can do that in the wilderness because you're in isolation. You're in some kind of social quarantine he said, now, the thing is, I want to take this and I want to put you among the nations, among society, and see what you really have. See whether you really obey me. I mean, how could you not obey him in the wilderness? To not obey him in the wilderness is not to eat. He said, but I want to, I want to take you, I don't want you to be of the world, but I want you to be in the world. I want to see how you survive. I want to see. The risk is I could lose you. The risk is you could become like the nations around you and start subscribing to their, the tenets of their gods. You can learn their ways, and I could lose you. But the risk is I could actually demonstrate what my kingdom is like among the nations, and you can, they can see what I'm like. So he actually led them out into the promised land that he provided for them among the world, among other nations who had other gods. It's an amazing, amazing form of, of, of leadership on God's part that he would lead them into the situation. It's pretty amazing. Just before they crossed into the promised land, there's a river, Jordan River. And just before they go into the promised land, it's like, it's like the night before they're going to go, really close to it. It's like this mass migration of millions of people who've left Egypt and they've, they've actually multiplied in the wilderness and their cattle have multiplied and they've prospered in the wilderness where there's nothing. It's amazing. And they come to the, the Jordan River and they're going to cross over in, and take the land. And there's this king who sees this. It's like, it's like locusts. He even called them locusts. He said, there's never been a mass migration. We've never seen people these numbers moving anywhere at any time. And he called out a false prophet named Balaam and said, I want you to curse them. And so Balaam goes up and he tries to curse them. He wants to comply with the king, but in his heart, he can't do it. He says, how can I curse what God has blessed? And there's this story where they get higher and higher. And, and the king takes them on. She says, you got to see these people. And there's this moment. It's in Numbers chapter 24, verses 5 to 7. An amazing moment. A very telling moment where uh, the king takes Balaam up in this mountain and they look out and as far as you could see 
in every direction is the children of Israel, and they're in rows, and they're in clean tents, and they shine, and they all have their banners. Each tribe has their own color system. Each tribe has their own uh, um, banner over them, and it signified who they were and what they were, what their hearts were like. And in the middle is the, the tabernacle of God and the glory of the Lord. And it was symmetrical. And it was beautiful. It was like a piece of art. And they get up there and, and he says, oh, he, he says, look at the tents of Israel. And he starts describing, he says, that it looks like a garden. And God took this chaotic, disheveled, crazy, slum mentality slaves for generations and took them out and led them and peeled them with his word and a revelation of his name and a revelation of who he was and peeled off layers of grime and brought them out and brought order and dignity and a pure religion, the purest religion, the best judicial system, the best law ever known to man that came down from revelation given to those people. Nobody else on the planet had a revelation like they had. And Balaam looks out and he says, oh, look at this. It looks like a beautiful garden. You ever see an Amish garden that just rose and it's all laid out and it's beautified and there's flowers on the edges and everything, everything just, it just is beautiful. It's beautiful. If we subscribe to a king named I Am, and Jesus referred to himself as I Am seven times, if we subscribe to a king named I Am and let him bring order to our life and to our families and to our finances and to our relationships, he'll do nothing but beautify it. He'll make sense out of it. He'll make sense out of it. He'll take us from a mentality. I mean, in one generation, he completely changed and created a people who are not a people and made them the most glorious, dignified, cleanest, most noble, the most powerful army ever assembled on the planet in one generation, just with his word, just cleansing them and getting them to rethink. He did this to me. My family were hillbillies. My family were, were drunkards, brawlers, uh, just, just all kinds of cobbled up marriages. And I, I was raised up in that, and then in, in a very short time, just by opening God's word, he changed how I thought, he changed how I felt, he changed how, he gave me a vision for what, what my family could look like. He changed me with his word, he took me into this wilderness, but that wasn't enough. He said, Pam, we got to see how this thing flies in real life, in, in, among, among sinners, and put me in the business, and I had to navigate that whole thing and see the kingdom of God come in my business, in my hometown, among people who didn't understand my language. My whole language had changed. God did it to me. He'll do it for us. He'll do it for the new people who come into our lives, into our churches. He will change us by showing us what a mighty king he is, what an awesome king he is. He did it to Israel. He'll do it to us. Now let's go to um, 1 Samuel. Once they got into the promised land, they prospered. I mean, everything worked. They got to see, they got to see God's tremendous blessing on it. 
on their lives, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the risk is he could lose it all. And it happens. They've got a prophet. They don't have a king. They have a prophet named Samuel, and he's honorable, he's decent, he's a man of integrity, but his children didn't walk in his ways, and they actually took bribes, and so the, the elders rose up and they said, your kids aren't walking the way you walked, and we can't just let this thing continue. We want a king. We want a king that we can see, and, and, and they actually rejected God as their king. And you can see this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and uh, He says, um, he says uh, they can have a king, but tell them what it's going to be like. And uh, he says, you insist on having a king. He will conscript your sons and make them run before his chariots. Some will be made to lead his troops in the battle, while others are forced into slave labor. They will be forced to plow the, the, the fields of the kings, the royal fields, and harvest his crops without pay. And they'll make his weapons and chariots and uh, chariot equipment. And uh, he will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his friends. He'll take a tenth of your harvest and distribute it to his favorites. He will demand uh, your slaves and the finest of your youth and will use your animals for his personal gain. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. You'll shed bitter tears because of this king you're demanding, but the Lord will not help you. And so he warned them. He said, Here, you can have this system, but you need to know what you're, what you're signing up for. He's going to be, they're just going to take. They're just going to tax they're just going to take and take and take. And what the contrast is I am, as a mighty king, just gave and gave and gave and gave. Even when he asked for a tithe, it wasn't for him. It was to pr produce the most beautiful, noble, religious system ever known to man. So that the, the people who are caring for the people and being there, the priests who would look after the people, didn't have to work out in the fields. He says, we'll supply, we'll, everyone just will give a little bit and we can provide everything that they need so that they can be with you and serve you and provide what you need spiritually. It's a powerful, powerful concept that no other nation on earth had. It's truly unique to the children of Israel. Tell them, tell them they'll go, they'll, their, their feelings will get all bent out of shape in their pride, in their ego, they'll go off to war and they'll take your young men. They'll take your sons and make them fight their wars. They're, they're crazy, nonsensical wars. That's my paraphrase. And it happens. It happens all the time. It'll happen in this generation. We'll have to deal with that as we get to it. That's why one reason I, I just can't, I just can't subscribe to it. I just can't because it's, it's, it's pride-driven. They went from one king to the next, and uh, the first one right out of the slot, the first king that came along was a dud, Saul, and it just, it didn't work. He lost one battle after the other. He couldn't follow God. He actually led the people further away from God. He actually went to a witch to get uh, a fortune teller to get direction because he couldn't hear from God. I mean, it's awful. It's a disaster. But there's this one young guy out in the back 40 
who's got a heart for God and a heart for God's people. And God says, I've taken you from, from out, in the, out in the fields, from following the ewes, and I've made you a shepherd of my people. And he found in David a heart. He says, your heart is like my heart. You feel the way I feel about, about the people of God. And he raised up David, and David isn't perfect. And that's what throws people off. You would, I, the story would read different if David never made a mistake and, was, and just was always living totally for the Lord. He didn't. He didn't. But he lived more for God than anybody else. And he had a heart for God. He would... Uh, uh, acknowledge the Lord. He would invite the Lord's counsel in his decisions. He included the Lord in all of his ways. And uh, uh, he loved the people. He was a noble, honest man filled with integrity who missed it, who missed it. But even when he missed it and God dealt with him, he turns to the Lord. When you read Psalm 54, he, he just regrets what he did. And he calls out to God. He doesn't want God to forsake him. He doesn't want him to take the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful, powerful story of a man turning his ways back to God. And people love David. Robin Hood is based on David. Uh, so, many, so many of our, our, our characters in, in literature are based on the story of David. He becomes the model of everything we like. He's Robin Hood. Uh, Saul's the, the sheriff of Nottingham chasing him around the wilderness. I mean, the story is an amazing fit. David, is, David becomes an amazing hero. And, uh, and God notices this, and he says, you know, uh, when I come back as king, I'm going to come out of David, out of the root of David. And if you go with me, let's just take a few minutes and look at this. Let's go to Jeremiah. I hope this isn't going to be too tedious for you to look at some verses that describe David as king, a future David as king. And it's easy... Uh, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. His mother comes from David, and even his stepdad, Joseph, comes directly from, J from David. They, they look like David. They're, they're, they're actually brave, noble uh, people who come just a few generations from David. I mean, it's really a profound thing that God has set this up. Jeremiah 23. I'm reading out of the new, um, the, today's Living Bible. And I think I got my verses mixed up. <laughs> wow. And I don't think I'll be able to find it again. Powerful promise of, of a root of David. And I'm sorry, my note here doesn't quite make sense. Let me just see one more thing. Yes. Chapter 23. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will place a righteous branch upon King David's throne. And notice the branch is capitalized. It's a person. And he shall be a king who shall rule with wisdom and justice. That's what we're longing for, those two things. And cause righteousness to prevail everywhere throughout the earth. And this is his name, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. And that's what Jesus is called. So you got righteousness, you got justice, you got uh, wisdom all coming together. Everything we're looking for in a government that we can't seem to find. And Jesus is the Lord, 
our righteousness. Powerful, powerful prophecy um, that perfectly describes Jesus. Let's go to um, Daniel chapter 7. Term right in your Bibles. Daniel. Daniel has this vision. Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. He said, Next I saw the arrival of a man, capitalized. And in the New King James, King James, it'll say, The Son of Man or as he seemed to be, brought there on clouds from heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days, that's our Father in heaven, and was presented to him, and he was given the ruling power and glory over all the nations of the world, so that all the people of every language must obey him. His power is eternal and will never end, and his government shall never fail. We're talking government here. And he's describing him as the son of man. Uh, and that becomes, David, or that becomes Jesus' favorite way to describe himself. He often said, um, the son of man will do this or the son of man will do that. And it's based on this verse. It's based on a revelation that, that was uh, particular for Daniel, where Daniel saw him as the son of man. The son of man is actually God as man. That's what makes it special. Uh, this verse, this particular verse, that the Son of Man shall come in the clouds and he'll judge the earth. The next time we hear this verse being relayed is when Jesus is being rejected as the king. He's being uh, uh, rejected as the king of the Jews. He's standing before the tribu tribunal of the elders of Israel. They're getting ready to, to beat him and to crucify him and to spit on him and reject him. And they finally get to this moment where He's not saying anything to them. And they finally get to this moment where they press it and they say, are you the son of God? Are you the son of, tell us plainly, are you the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? And then what he quotes, he says, is you will see the son of man coming on clouds to judge the earth. And what he's actually saying that's so powerful to me, he's not saying no, he's not denying that he's the Messiah. He's actually saying, this is who I am. But he says, there's going to be a moment coming when everything's going to be turned around and you will be standing in front of me, and I'll be your judge. It's one of the most amazing things I've seen in Scripture in this past year or so, of just seeing how Jesus just turned that around in a masterful way. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of David. Let's look at a couple more verses. Can we go back to Zechariah? I'm sorry, go forward. Go turn right again. Zechariah. And we're looking at Zechariah chapter 6. Let's start in verse, verse 9. So this is a, a prophecy. I did it again. I don't see it here. I'm actually in a Bible I don't use very often. Oh, here we are. Look, look go down to verse, uh, verse 12. Tell him that the Lord of, what the Lord of hosts says. You represent the man, again, capital M, who will come, 
whose name is the branch. That fits in with what we just read. And he will grow up from himself, and he will build the temple of the Lord. To him belongs the royal title. He will rule uh, both as king and as priest with perfect harmony between the two. Well, no one has done that before. No one has been priest and king. He talks about Jesus coming as a priest and as a king. And of course, the reason we're, we can stand here today is he was a priest on my behalf. And it was the lamb and the priest who offered the sacrifice. Jesus is priest and he's king. There's another powerful verse that describes him as shepherd and king as well. Well, we're at the, right there. Let's go to chapter 9. In verse 9, he said, Rejoice greatly, O my people. Shout for joy. For look, your king is coming. He is the righteous one, the victor. He is lowly, riding on a donkey's colt. This verse was actually fulfilled when Jesus was put on the donkey, rides down the hill from Bethany to Jerusalem, and they're shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're proclaiming the son of David as the king. And this is the verse that was prophesied hundreds of years before, that your king is coming. He's meek, he's lowly, he's coming riding on a donkey. And it actually happened. It actually happened to Jesus. I just think that's so powerful. There's some other verses in Ezekiel that describes that probably the most number of verses that you'll ever find concerning God being king and coming again as king is David. David had one revelation after the other. There's one psalm after the other where David describes the king. That he, he would say, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Talking about the king, the glories of the king coming. Lift up your heads, O, o gates, and let the king of righteousness come in. He said, the, uh, the scepter of your kingdom, O king, is, is righteousness. The scepter. The scepter is a sign of authority. Even Queen Elizabeth, if you Google it and you go to the, um, uh, the Bridge of London, there's, a, there's a, a guardhouse there where the crown jewels are kept, and you can actually see Queen Elizabeth's scepters. And, and you know what the scepter is. It's a sign of authority. It's a sign uh, that a king has that says, I'm in charge here. The scepter of the king of Israel, the king of righteousness, is righteousness. That's his authority. Your authority is linked to your righteousness. If we're doing stuff in private that's unrighteous, we can't then go and pray and have authority with God and expect him to answer our prayers because there's no righteousness. We can't live in an unrighteous way, in a, in a secret way, and have authority with God in public. It won't, it won't ever happen. The scepter of his kingdom is righteousness. Everything about the kingdom, that's why he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The thing that drives us crazy about corrupt government is unrighteousness. God wants to raise our righteous, righteous consciousness and our righteous level and awareness of, of, of the value of righteousness. The scepter of your kingdom is righteousness. Living right with God, doing what's right in the sight of God, living right with each other is part of our authority. This week, I, I didn't read the article, but I, I saw a headline that said that they firebombed in Iran this week at, uh, uh, a shrine 
religious shrine, historic shrine, and, and then I saw it. They actually firebombed this week in Iran the shrine of Mordecai and Esther where they're born or where they're buried. They actually blew it up this week. And what makes that story so relevant is the scepter, when, when Mordecai coached Queen Esther to go before the king to make an appeal on behalf of the people, if the king didn't put out his scepter, she would die because you couldn't approach the king. You were someone, maybe it was a coup or someone who's going to try to attack the king. The only thing that could save their life is if the king put out his scepter and then they'd be accepted. And Elizabeth, uh, Esther goes in and she's going to make an appeal on behalf of the people. She's going to ask the king to save the people's life. And she comes into the court. She's not allowed. It's forbidden. And the king sees who it is. And he recognized she has authority with him. And so he holds out his scepter. And she's able to come in and make an appeal to the king. Isn't that interesting? And that, that pilgrimage shrine that has lasted all this time, was firebombed this week. Makes history very, very real, doesn't it? The only thing that allows you to go before God, the only thing that allows me to go before God, is what Jesus did as my priest, where God sees the righteousness of Christ on me, and he says, let him come close, let him come to my throne, and whatever he asks, I'll hear him, because he's right with me. He's righteous. He's clothed. The scepter of, of our, our authority, where our authority is with God, has to do with righteousness. I think the big battle in the kingdom these days, in my heart and your heart, is over righteousness. What you do in private. Will you live right before the Lord? That's the big issue. That's the big issue. That's the big tension. Just to become politically active and, and pronounce judgments on, 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 the, uh, on the people who are making crazy decisions, just to go off at that, that's not going to have any effect. What's going to have an effect is our righteousness. Our being right, living right, speaking right, having right motives. And it's a gift from God, but it's also something that we can do. It's both. It's... it's, it's it's something that is, that he's proclaimed, but it's something that we must walk out. The scepter of the kingdom is righteousness. Seek first, in terms of priority, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's everything. It's everything. In the very last, I mean, these are the last days, but in the very last even to the point where we come before God and we stand before him on the judgment day, the thing that's going to matter more than anything is righteousness. It's paramount. It's huge. I am is my king. I am the same I am that led the people of Israel out of Egypt is my king. <laughs> Moses' God was I am. I am is my brother. I am is my king. I am, I am a son of that kingdom. I'm part of that kingdom. And it was all given to me by grace. I was never smart enough to figure it out. I was never uh, 
capable in my own power to get there, but he said by his grace, by his mercy, he declared me righteous and declared me a son and, and brought me into his kingdom. He translated me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Isn't that an amazing grace? We're not excited enough. God did that by his grace, not because we were clever, not because we come from good DNA or good genes or good background or we've done something right. All we did is we accept his terms of righteousness and it happened to me. That's the most amazing testimony. Has that happened to you? Aren't you grateful for it? Let's stand together. Why don't you raise your hands to the Lord and just let a fresh garment of righteousness slip down over top of you, cover you. Say, Lord, I received this gift from you. It's a gift. It's the righteousness of Christ. You're the branch who came in righteousness. But Jesus, I want to live right. I want to do right. I want to think right. I want to be right in my own home where I ought to walk. I want to be right in my business. I want to be right and upright in my motives and my dealings. Lord, I can't do that except by your grace. And I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful that you're the great I am and that you love me. And I have found favor with you. And because you loved Abraham and because you loved Jacob and Isaac, you've brought me into this whole thing. And I haven't thanked you enough. I'm so grateful. Thank you for letting me be a part of your kingdom. I want to proclaim it. I want to I explore the boundaries of it. I want to go to the extreme outer ed edges of it. I declare that you're my king. And it's your kingdom that I live for. It's your kingdom that I want to give my time, my strength, my energy, my priorities is for your kingdom. Is that your heart? Is that your prayer? If it is, say amen to the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love your rule. We love your reign. It's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that leaves me feeling clean and peaceful. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.